This is the Based Catholic, because Catholicism should be the base of all hot takes. All the cool kids now are unwoke. Some of them are going back to Christianity, because it's the only way to be rebellious. Because, you know, everybody's blue-haired, non-binary, and that's like... (laughs) It's the cover of Newsweek, so you have to be like a Catholic doing sing the rosary to be a problem now. Yeah. This current world we've created spiritually for people. It's about money and profit and everything has no history or tradition. Everything's so disorienting and people are going back to things that root them. And now your host, Jessica Kramer. Welcome to the Base Catholic. Last week, I called for conservatives with massive platforms to showcase examples of better men than the phenomenon of Andrew Tate. Well, I decided maybe I should do that with even my small platform. I've been following my first guest for years. The cool thing about Jason Everett is that he was based before it was cool to be based. Here is my interview with him. Uh, So we are here with one of my favorite Catholic speakers, Jason Everett, founder of The Chastity Project. Jason, you've been doing chastity ministry for teens in high schools and on college campuses for over 20 years. Obviously, you've dedicated your life and support your family through this mission. Do you think that this is the biggest issue of our time? Oh, man, if I could just tell you, if this one piece of the puzzle was in the right place in people's lives, they'd become a lot simpler. I think <laughs> just, so. I mean, you just think of how much how much struggle is caused by, by the heartbreak, the failed marriages, the abortion, uh, the self-hatred, the depression, the pornographic addiction. Like, if, if we just had chastity in place— I think life for a lot of teenagers and young adults would be so much more manageable, so much less anxiety going on, and, and a, just a lot less heartbreak, and, and people having an easier time understanding God and His call for their life. So, yeah, I've kind of devoted my life to it because I think if this piece of the puzzle is in the right spot, you know, God's much more able to help us find the path that He has planned for us. Yeah, I agree. I think it would not only help people personally, but, you know, coming from the world of politics. I mean, I've always said this should be the most important policy and nobody takes it seriously. But I think it's I think it's the root of all of our issues. I mean, look who the prisons are filled with. The prisons are filled with boys typically coming, uh, men coming from fatherless families. Well, why is his dad not around? Why did his dad not commit to the mom or marry her in the first place? You know, why did he move on to the next woman? And then they they say that the kids raised without dads, that the boys get guns and the girls end up getting strollers. Mm. And then when you look at that happen on a sociological scale uh, across the world, what happens I mean, it's these, you know, 15 year old girls having a baby and then, you know, and then her baby's pregnant when she's 14. And it's like a generational kind of cycle. And these young boys just don't have a masculine figure to attach to. And so raised typically by single moms, they tend to hyper-masculinize and find, you know, on social media, these examples of machismo masculinity and (laughs) gravitate towards that. And you can imagine the result of that, (laughs) the fruit born from that when it comes to dating life and why so many young adult single women are getting pretty darn frustrated. So yeah, I, I think if you can put some public policy dollars towards something, chastity education would be a good place to start. It would. I, you hit the nail on the head. You went exactly where I wanted you to go. Um, yeah, the reason I wanted to bring you on is to provide a counter-masculine perspective, because right now the red pill space is just filling the internet. I mean, I am inundated with it on social media. I'm seeing it constantly. It's being talked about, obviously, in in conservative political spheres, but also it's seeping into the culture. You have probably talked to more young people over the past 20 years than anyone. What have you seen get better and what have you seen get worse when it comes to the relations between the sexes? Because right now, I think it's really bad. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's made it worse, honestly, is the the screens, uh, the cell phones, the fact that dating is almost commodified nowadays, where you can just get on there and swipe this way, swipe that way. I like this, I like that, and it's almost like women now who become menu items. Mm. And but I remember one woman I was writing a book for the guys on dating etiquette. And one woman said, you know, guys, the easier it is to ask a lady out, the easier it is for the lady to say no. And I never thought of that about that before. Like, it's so easy for her to say no when you're just swiping back and forth. But to ask a girl out with pure intentions and in broad daylight when you actually have to look her in the eyes and know her name, that can be really scary. But when a man is willing to do that, not for the sake of what he can get from her, but for the sake of taking a risk, even though I might get rejected, just to have a shot to have one date in person with this girl. For the woman's perspective, it's like, wow. I remember one woman saying, I can't even imagine being with a guy who's not willing to take any risk. Mm -hmm. And so these apps take away all risk. And you end up with these guys that are look all machismo on the outside, but are pretty cowardly. And they're hiding behind screens to overcome their fear of rejection. And so... In the end, I don't think the girls are happy. I don't think the guys are remarkably happy. And you know, you see these different podcasts that are out there promoting these ideas of whose fault is this, and uh, you know, it's it's it just becomes the spectacle. And honestly, nobody's terribly happy with the result right nowadays. No, no. Well, actually, I was I was reading an article, and they were making a connection between porn and dating apps. It's related to the dopamine hits. Some men, not a lot of men on the dating apps, but some men are receiving that validation through the apps. And yeah. that, and that, like, and same thing with social media. You know, like, I think they're all related. Do you think it is really like social media, dating apps, and pornography that has just taken over our generation? Yeah, I mean, it's like a three-headed monster, like King Ghidorah from some Godzilla <laughs> movie. But, I mean, those are the ones because when a guy, you know, hops on the, you know, goes out in the real world, you know, having a woman look at you with that kind of desire and passion and interest, it's like, how many times would a guy ever experienced that in his whole life? But you can get that validation in 30 seconds by countless airbrushed supermodels just staring at you with this desire that nobody in real life actually looks at you with. And so <laughs> what ends up happening to these guys is, uh, you know, they get these porn goggles. Like they don't even know how to look at a woman except through the lens of lust. And they begin to judge the value of a woman by how much lust she generates in him. But what it does to the men, and this is so important, is it makes a man effeminate. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is not feminine, which is a perfection. Uh, it, it's not same-sex attraction, totally different topic. Effeminacy. St. Thomas Aquinas Defined effeminacy is when a man refuses to let go of what is pleasurable in order to do what is arduous or difficult. So it's a disordered attachment to the pleasure, creating an aversion from challenge and, and difficult things. And so porn has essentially emasculated an entire generation of men. And exteriorly, they look all machismo, but they're deeply effeminate beings that are way too attached to pleasure. So it's like I can't even pull myself away from my TikTok or Instagram because I can just take all the hurt of my life, all the rejection, all the insecurities, and it all just gets bowled over by these dopamine hits I can get in, in with zero effort whatsoever. Then you try to transition to an actual committed relationship that takes risk and involvement and sacrifice. It's like, how do I do that? I, I remember one high school boy telling me he goes home on the weekends, watches 12 hours of porn on Friday, Saturday, goes to bed, watches 12 hours of oh porn on Saturday, Sunday, and then comes back to school on Monday. And he said, I don't even enjoy it. It disgusts me, but I don't know how to live without it. It's That's a, it's a drug. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
much more potent too. Because you speak to so many men and women, I wanted to ask you, it might seem like a trite question, but I actually really want an answer. Do men like women? It's a really good question. It's a profound one. When you ask it, I think of, um, there is a book St. John Paul II wrote called Love and Responsibility. And in the first edition, first translation that came out, he goes to the different types of love. And he starts with love as attraction, love as desire, you know, love as goodwill. And then a newer translation came out. And instead of speaking about love as attraction, the translator said, actually, there were two words in the Polish for attraction, but John Paul doesn't use either one of them. He actually uses a deeper word, which is better translated into the English as fondness. And mm. because I can be attracted to somebody I know nothing about, but I can't really be fond of someone until I've seen the attributes that they offer that are beyond the physical, where it's a real liking of the person. Like, wow, I, I really like being in this person's presence. I like their virtue. I like their personality traits. It's not just attraction. And John Paul talks about this as kind of the raw material of love, that, that attraction that goes deeper. But he says, if it simply stays there, and, and just as, I, I, you know, I, I like this thing, I want it for me, it doesn't really mature into love. Because instead of saying, I love you and I want what's best for you, and I desire the good for you, it's basically, I desire you as a good for me. I love me and I want you. And he said, we've got to graduate to love as benevolence, where you're actually willing the good of the other. And if it doesn't reach that form of maturation, it essentially becomes, I'm in love with the feelings that you generate in me, instead of I'm in love with you as a person. And, and a lot of times when people commit to that superficial form of love, John Paul talks about it even breeds a certain hatred of sorts when that affection that you had towards the person that was just in how they made you feel dissipates and then you feel resentment towards them like wait yeah. a minute you used to make me feel this and now i don't feel this anymore and he said it can even become a form of hatred because it's rooted in the wrong thing and so i would like to believe that men like women i mean i certainly enjoy being in the company of women and it, i mean how sad if a guy got so attached the sensuality that he experiences in porn, that when he really tries to connect to a woman on a personal basis, face to face, he's left feeling deeply disappointed and threatened and, and wants to just swear the whole thing off. Well, screw it. I get a lot more satisfaction on my laptop than I'd get in person. I don't even like you girls. And so it's almost as if he's inflicted a wound upon himself that's taken away his capacity to be captivated. Well, I was I guess I was asking because now we're seeing AI generated images of pornography. Mm -hmm. And so there's, you know, and obviously these are internet guys. Like I'm not they're not real guys. I doubt any normal person is one of these. But I do think that the the own that they're trying to make on feminists and, you know, maybe women that have rejected them is, well, we don't need you anymore. Yeah. It doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense because obviously the world will die out at that point. But Yeah. It's another form of, I think, women being replaced in society because we're seeing that obviously with the gender ideology taking over women's sports, et cetera. But, you know, I was, I was thinking about that. I was like, do, do men actually prefer a real woman? Like, I, I don't know because I think pornography has just changed that for so many. No. Yeah. I mean, some don't because, wait a minute, you have emotional needs, you require commitment, you're going to take effort on my part. Well, hey, having an erotic moment with my laptop and privacy is a lot easier to manage than, than you and your needs and your feelings. So 
I mean, it's terribly sad. And, and to say this, well, we don't need you guys anymore. Okay, well, let's see how that pans out. Give it another five years. Give it another 10 years. When you're 35 years old now and you're alone with your computer and your screens and you've had endless sessions on your porn websites and things like that, how you feeling? <laughs> How's that working for you? Um, you're going to grow old alone with a laptop. It's like your life is going to be completely devoid of meaning because you had such a false notion of freedom. You know, freedom exists for the sake of love, John Paul II mm. said. It exists to be given away. And if it's cherished as an end in and of itself, it ends up kind of rotting where it's like, hey, I don't need a girl. I don't need a ball and chain. I don't need to be tied down. I don't need kids. It's like game over. It's like a man finds himself by the sincere gift of himself. And if I want to just cling to freedom for the sake of having endless options, you're going to die a really miserable, self-absorbed individual. Because it's not just what you shouldn't do. It's not who you are. It's against your own nature being made in the image and likeness of a God who is love to refuse to love, to refuse to risk, to refuse to make a gift of yourself. So it's not just against what you should do. Oh, you're violating this commandment. It's not who you are. And that's why it will never lead to full human flourishing. Yeah. You always talk about this quote, and I never can find it. I think it's from John Paul II. You said something about um, your capacity to love is directly correlated to your capacity, is it to give? Yeah. Well, yeah. Your freedom is best measured by your capacity to love. And so that anything that inhibits your capacity to love, it's to that extent you're not free. And so if it's your lust, your addiction, your self-absorption, your pride, your wounds, your fears, call yourself as free as you want. If you're not free to love and make a gift to yourself because of any of those things, then we become a slave to those. So it's a really a, a false notion of freedom and man um, that's triggering need for a lot of healing. Yeah. Um, and I just want to ask this in reverse because I don't want to just constantly pour on men. Do you think women like men? Um, some, but some have given up hope because, you know, and, and men as well, because of, they've been burned and they might make themselves physically available to guys, but emotionally not so. So it's almost like there, there might not be a lot of boundaries around their body of the woman, but there's like a, a fortress around her heart. And so she'll kind of offer the guys what the guys are least likely to reject, namely the physical. So in a sense, they're hiding behind their own nakedness, mm. saying, I know he won't say it or no to this, um, but, but, if, but if he looks deeper than my nakedness, like if he looks actually into my heart, he might reject me if I didn't offer him this. And I can't bear that wound again. And so I'll just keep him close, but at an arm's distance by physically doing these things with him, creating kind of a semblance of intimacy. But it's almost like she's never felt so alone as she does in the arms of these guys. And it's, it's really sad because it's a protective mechanism. I want intimacy, but the very thing I want the most, which is love, requires the thing I fear the most, which is vulnerability. And so I'm just going to live sitting on this fence, but it's, it's no way to live. And so it's a shame if we didn't like each other anymore, but I think a lot of this stuff, whether it's the red pole movement or this, that is, is kind of growing out of where people are living out of their own wounds yeah. and they're not entirely sure how to heal them, but it sure is a heck of a lot easier to just blame the opposite sex. Yeah, I actually, so I was going to ask you this a little bit later, but because it, it came up now, um, I obviously am trying to steer clear of videos of Andrew Tate. I don't have any interest in watching the interviews with people like Candace Owens or Tucker Carlson, but I did catch a clip of him saying um, to end the sexual revolution, one of the sexes needs to change. I wanted to ask you, 
That would be convenient. I, yeah. Um, I want to ask you, if it, is it not possible for both to change or do you think one has to influence the other? And if so, which one? It's almost like saying, you know, you know, I would have a perfect marriage, but my wife isn't perfect. Um, (laughs) If she was perfect, it'd be perfect. And it's funny, but part of me believes that, you know, part of me was like, if she was this kind of carbon copy, you know, archetype of everything I've ever dreamed of a woman, I'd have a perfect marriage. And that's a really convenient place to escape to instead of doing the dirty work of just like, uh, maybe I'm a jerk. You know, maybe <laughs> I'm unforgiving. Maybe I'm selfish. Maybe I put myself first a little bit too much. And so to say that one of us needs to change is just hilarious um, because we both need to change. Both men and women have contributed to the fallout of the sexual revolution. We both have taken advantage of each other. And so long as it's kind of this one-sided, we got our junk together, but you guys over there got to do yours. Granted, we could really influence each other. I mean, what if all the men in the world just quit consuming porn and started asking girls out face-to-face and treating with great dignity and respect? Could we turn the tide on the sexual revolution? I think so. I think women would follow that lead. I was just like, hey, wait a minute, a whole culture of men who doesn't see us as a collection of body parts? Hey, this is good. This is authentic chivalry. This is not to- toxic masculinity. It's what masculinity actually is. And you know, likewise, if women, you know, Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, said that women are the gatekeepers of a civilization, meaning wherever they set the bar in terms of morality, men will typically ascend to that point. And so if the bar is low as can be, then why exert the effort? You know, if I'm getting all the benefits of having a wife without any of the commitment, the guys are going to jump real high. But if every, you know, let's say I give a chastity talk at a high school and every girl at the school says, hey, we're all doing this abstinence till marriage thing, guys would realize pretty quickly, well, hey, if I actually want a real life date with anybody at the school, I need to step up my game. And I find that men will be as much of a gentleman as a woman requires, but women unfortunately aren't requiring a lot because they just figure, well, if I don't give it to the guy, he's going to find it elsewhere. And so, yeah, we could both influence each other in a much more positive way than we have, but this has got to be a both and instead of an either or. Yeah, because I see the both camps in the in Catholicism. And I've always kind of thought, well, I think it kind of lies on the corrupter. Like it kind of lies because it could be a guy or it could be a girl. Whoever's pushing the envelope, I think, in the relationship, I think that person is the one that needs to have a massive heart change. Yeah. But I mean, Pope John Paul II, I mean, to be fair, he did say that, you know, the balance has kind of been, it's kind of out of whack, but he said, he says, he thinks it's more up to the responsibility of the man if the balance of the sex is to be restored. See, I love that, but then everyone's going to accuse me of, oh, you're placing it all on men. I mean, I've always preferred that though, because I think as the initiators of a relationship, the active participant they're the ones leading the relationship. And if they're not leading in that spiritually, then what does that say about how they're going to lead a family? Yeah. And I, and I think the key is that if you want to ma- motivate a woman, uh, you make her feel understood. If you want to motivate a man, you make him feel needed. If you try to motivate a man by placing the blame on him, well, that's your fault. All this stuff is going out. He'll typically shut down and get defensive. Yeah. But if it's like, oh my goodness, there's this huge crisis and and who can possibly solve it? We need you. Like Then it's feel like, okay, you're not coming at me. You're coming to me. Mm. You know, you're presenting a problem and saying that I'm needed in a unique way for this battle. That's going to motivate a guy to step into that ring. The image comes to mind of like, if, you know, we're in in the house at night and we hear glass break and some burglar is coming into the house, 
I mean, would I be like, honey, go check it out? <laughs> you know, like, like, it's like, no. And it's just like, even the most staunch feminists would realize that no one would kind of shame the woman for not getting up and confronting the burglar. Whereas if the man didn't do it, there would be an instinctive shame. It's just like what man would even feel himself kind of shoving his wife towards the door, you know, while he sits there and kind of hides in the corner under the blankets. And I think culturally, if we've got guys saying, hey, you girls go fix this thing, I'm going to sit here. It's like, dude, there's a burglar in the house culturally, and you want to go send her to fix it? Dude, step mm. up. <laughs> and so I don't think guys want women to take the lead. I just think they don't want to feel blamed. And so I think we've just got to really craft our language in Ooh. terms of, uh, you know, are we blaming and finger pointing? Or are we saying, hey, there's an issue and we really need you guys to step up in this pivotal moment of human history? Um, and I think if it's more of an invitation than a condemnation, men will be more likely to embrace the call. Because a lot of guys have been deeply hurt. I mean, you know, there's got this whole MGTOW movement of men who go their own way. And, you know, our inclination is just like, hey, lick your wounds, get over it, guy. You know, d d don't give up on women altogether. But I think they need to be heard of just like, yeah, tell me. Like, you've been really burned, not just once, but twice, but three times by girls who really took advantage. You broke your heart in half, and now you just want to quit the whole thing. Well, maybe there's a better way. And so I think we've got to validate the wounds of both sexes because they're real. Yeah. The using has been going in both directions. And instead of just pointing fingers, yeah, try to move forward and build what John Paul called a, a civilization of love. You know, obviously, I don't want to talk about Andrew Tate too much. But one thing that I did find really interesting is that him and his brother Tristan converted to Catholicism because they thought Christianity was weak in the West. Now, I've heard this from another man, so I do think it's weirdly a thing. I would agree that the church's influence has massively weakened since the Reformation and the Enlightenment. But I don't think Catholicism is for the weak. I mean, I converted to Catholicism from Protestantism. And yeah. if you look at the lives of the saints and you look to Christ, it is not for the faint of heart. So personally, yeah. I think he just wanted to justify his poor morality with a worldview that would allow for his sexual promiscuity. But yeah. I did want to ask you, for guys that are seeking masculinity and they're looking to maybe a better figure like a Jordan Peterson, they're yeah. not looking at Catholicism these days. Why do you think that is? Now, did you say that Andrew Tate converted from Catholicism to... I don't know if he was Catholic or just Christian, but he did convert okay. to Islam. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd, I'd heard that. And, you know, I remember someone telling me recently that the, they kind of listened and, and heard out his reasons for doing so. And a lot of times if you're if you're spoon-fed a really lukewarm version of the Christian faith of just yeah. be, be nice to everybody and it's just like, I don't know, men really need a reason to genuflect. It just doesn't come very mm. naturally to us. And if I don't feel a sense of awe and fear of God, it's just like if it's just this you go into church and it's gather us together to get i mean <laughs> I, i'm sorry i mean the music the liturgy a lot of yes, times yes. so feminized yeah that a lot of the guys are just checked out before the end of the entrance hymn i mean it, it's made it so horizontal because you know yes the church is the mother and the church gathers together in a sense obviously but the vertical aspect of the liturgy, you know, has, has so been erased that guys are like, okay, I'll go here with the wife and kids, but I'm physically here, but I'm gone. 
and then if they hear of a different religion that's much more rigid and demanding and requires sacrifice and routine prayer and discipline that speaks to our masculine nature a lot more and so you know perhaps he found that within islam but i think he left christianity or whatever but he wasn't leaving the real thing he was leaving what he thought it was a watered-down yeah. version because if you look at the lives of the saints these were not lukewarm lives. I mean, these people were living serious mortification and sacrifice and heroic love and martyrdom. And it's just a shame that he wasn't introduced to that reality of Catholicism before, you know, or Christianity before parting ways with it. So, yeah, I don't think he got the full feathered version. He got a, maybe got some 1980s or 90s catechesis, yeah. uh, which is, is hardly enough to, to really make you want to give up your life for it. Yeah, well, that's why, you know, you're seeing a lot of young men being drawn back to the Latin mass specifically because of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the rigor, the discipline, the clarity, the structure, you know, all of that really appeals for some reason to the masculine soul. Um, and when it's just kind of like, a, you know, let's gather around and, and hold hands and, you know, walk a labyrinth and pray with clay and make felt banners. It's just like, OK, I'm out of here. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I think having a more reverent structured liturgy that has a more of a vertical dimension than simply horizontal will do a lot to keep guys more in their faith. There was something that I've been trying to work through and I figured maybe you could help me. I've been noticing that it's possible for us to sometimes objectify something good in someone. One thing that I had been seeing in maybe the whatever podcast mostly was that a lot of these self-proclaimed high value men, whatever that means, are not virgins or practicing chastity in their relationships, but they're declaring that they want virgins or women with low body counts, which is also a phrase I absolutely hate. <laughs> it's so Gnostic. Like, it, no. it's just so bad. Um, it sounds like a murder scene. <laughs> it does. I mean, that's all I hear. When I hear body count, I just think of how many fatalities there are. <laughs> and spiritually, that is what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's it's horrible. Like, I, I hate the term. Um yeah. And I don't think it's because they actually have a desire for virtue. I think it's more about them. I think they think it makes them look good in this day and age to other men to acquire that in a woman. So it irritates me because I'm offended on behalf of these women because they're basically saying to these girls, you're good enough to sleep with, but not to marry. Even though I'm just like you, I deserve better. And so, but I'm also looking at it from the other angle and I'm like, but they're also objectifying the pure girl. Like there's just a total missing of seeing women yeah. as person. Yeah. So what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, part of that, they're sexualizing innocence, um, which shows they're not worthy of it. Um, but then also, I think we're dealing with some really insecure guys, a guy that knows how much he compares one woman to the next and who would never want to be compared uh, from a woman to him. And so how do I deal with my insecurities? I clear the slate. You don't get to compare me to anybody because you don't get to have anybody. Meanwhile, I can go sow my royal oats and uh, and I can harbor in my own heart where I grade you amongst the rest of these girls, um, you know, but but you better not do the same thing to me. So I think the real core of it, honestly, is insecurity. Ooh, that's a great take. I haven't heard anybody say that. Yeah. You know, and, and I, you know, I entered marriage. I mean, people know our story with Kristalina and I, I did enter Mary as a virgin and she had had, a, you know, a, a very different past and then had a big conversion. And, you know, I know what it's like to wrestle with those insecurities of just like, well, Hey, you know, I haven't been with anybody and, 
you know, she has, and, you know, is she going to compare me? And, you know, is she going to have thoughts of those other guys? And just the thought of her with those other guys is, is hard to wrestle through. But, you know, it was difficult. But you know what John Paul said? John Paul said, love is a constant challenge thrown to us by God. That's what love is. Mm. And I think a lot of guys are afraid of love being thrown at them. And so they would just rather remove the obstacles of love and be like, well, let me just find some girl out there who is never going to compare me to another guy. And I don't have to worry about getting any STDs from her, any baggage, any kids from previous relationships. So I can just spend decades of my life consuming porn and tallying up my own body count. And then when I'm all done playing around, I'll just settle down with a good girl. Well, frankly, you don't deserve such a good girl. And I think that the girls that are out there that have been patiently waiting for their future husbands should think twice about some of these guys. Now, granted, I've met guys who've had bad pasts, really had fantastic conversions, turned their life around, didn't, did end up marrying a woman without a past, and they, they have a good marriage. But the key is the authenticity of that conversion instead of thinking, okay, I'm just going to play the field, and then when I want to settle down, yeah. then I'll find a good girl. That's a real big difference. Welcome back to the Call Her Traddy segment where I give my trad reaction to what's trending. Welcome back to The Base Catholic. I'm your host, Jessica Kramer. My next interview is a segment I did with Marlo Slayback on why we think people aren't having kids. We obviously have a fertility crisis in the West. No one can really dispute that fact, and I don't think anyone is happy about it. But the issue that I'm seeing is that we're missing the prescription for the diagnosis, and we're so paralyzed to do anything about it. The right wants to address the economic concerns of American families for maybe why they're putting off having more children. Now, could that help? Sure. Lift the burden. But I don't think this is economic related. I think it's due to a devastating moral collapse and social dynamics. I think many married couples contracept and choose to limit how many children they have because they don't want too much of a disruption to their lifestyle. We're materialists. I think cohabitating couples are not only in for a rude awakening on the likelihood of their divorce down the road when they look at the data and research, but they're also delaying marriage and children because they want to buy the McMansion and have a huge wedding years after getting engaged. Also to them, what's the urgency? How much is a piece of paper the way they see it going to change their relationship? They're already playing house. To be honest, I think the main reason for our fertility crisis has more to do with our epidemic of singleness. Helen Andrews has pointed out that most of our declining births are coming from a lack of family formation in the first place. These declining numbers are coming specifically from the unmarried and childless. Being that millennials are getting married later and less in life than previous generations, it's already expected that a quarter of my generation will never marry. In my Peace for Crisis magazine entitled The Political Path Forward, Get Married and Have Kids that I wrote two years ago this month, I say... When you raise a generation to be irreligious, that thinks sex is casual recreation and an entitlement that one's owed, that worships at the altar of their own orgasm, that thinks marriage is obsolete or doomed to fail because they grew up in divorced families, that assumes children are an accessory to one's career or a burden to avoid altogether, that thinks it's trendy to have baby mamas and daddies and co-parent, that believes getting a dog and living together is the best way to try it out, and to whom dating apps are preferable to forming real in-person connections, you will inevitably deter a marriage culture. So with all that being said, here is my discussion with ISI National Director of Student Programs and food and culture writer, Marlo Slayback. I definitely think policy may contribute slightly. I do not think policy is going to help solve 
the crisis, the fertility crisis. I, I just think people don't want to have kids. Like that, well, I think <laughs> that's what it comes down to. I think there's, well, this is interesting because I think there's, there's two different groups of people that we're talking about. Like there's a group of people that aren't getting married and having kids. And then there's a group of people mm-hmm. who are maybe already getting, married. Yeah. Maybe married yeah. or like, you know, in a long-term living together situation and then sure. they're putting off having kids or they're not having a lot of kids. I think there's like, sure. there's a couple different factions. So when people kind of use a blanket statement. I'm like, well, there's different factors for different types of right. people in different situations. My parents are uh, traditional, very, you know, they're Middle Eastern. So there is this script in the in our community that, you know, you get married, um, then you have kids and, you know, you have a, you have a house. So very traditional. Um, but I think even among, you know, just generally educated, um, you know, Americans that are Gen Z and millennials, um, they just seem so nihilistic about marriage <laughs> and family formation and having kids now. It, it's actually quite frightening. Um, so that makes me kind of uncertain about what the future holds for, um, you know, having kids and um, living in a country that's child friendly because, you know, it, you look, you go to Europe and I was, you know, the, kind of going off script right now, but um, no, I love interesting it. Thing that, yeah, sorry. I'm like, rambling, no, I want, I want to go off on tangents. <laughs> Great. Okay. I'm glad I can go off a tangent, but I was, we're considering taking, um, my son with us on a trip to Europe in, in the spring and, um, they don't have the facilities like the U S does for accommodating children. Um, Italy is notorious for, um, it's, you know, I mean, there's more people dying than there are being born, I believe mm. right now. So really, you know, really bad fertility crisis. Um, but there, I've been told, and I've, I've seen in different mom blog posts about this, is that they're extremely accommodating of children. So they don't have the facilities. They don't have like, you know, they won't have like um, the, you know, the high chairs for kids at restaurants or a kid's menu or anything. Kid's menu is very, very American thing. So that's not surprising <laughs> at all. But um, if you tell them that like, you know, or if, if they even see that a baby is with you or a kid is with you, they're like, oh, we can, you know, make this this pasta with just some sauce on it, plain sauce on it, if they like it. Um, they're, you know, they'll talk to your baby in public. They'll be so sweet and accommodating and nice, even though the facilities aren't there, like the baby changing facilities, the lactation facilities, things like that. Um, so I think people really love seeing babies. They love, you know, especially parents. Um, parents love seeing children. They, they remind them of their own children. Um, but people who've never had kids don't feel that way. Um, they'd rather see a puppy in public and like ogle uh. it and say how cute it is, but th- they won't have the same, um, you know, affection towards a child because they've never had one and they don't, they're not around them either because, yeah. you know, they, li- they come from households that maybe they had another sibling or two other siblings, or maybe they're an only child. Um, Primal and I think that's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's, um, yeah, it's definitely, uh, downhill from here I think to some degree unless there's some sort I'm not optimistic what can a child bring someone who doesn't want to feel suffering who wants to be you know who wants the 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 leisure and the um freedom of a life without children like I won't lie to you like yeah having kids is limiting um you lose freedom you uh, have to accommodate these little tyrants sometimes who, you know, you civilize, like you were tasked with civilizing children, but you also get a lifetime of um, unparalleled joy. Um, you have children who, you know, they know, they, that you get to, that you were the steward of as, you know, those are God's children, right? 
um, and you are the steward of God's children. And there, there's something so, um, it's just this, this monumental task that people without kids, they don't understand that sort of, um, that like redemptive quality, like you said, of parenthood, because we can offer up our suffering. Um, you know, it's for our sanctification. And, um, you know, I always say like, whenever I am going through something, I'm like, just offer it up, Marlo. Like I, yeah, that's something I'm probably going to be telling my kids when they're growing up to offer it up. Um, well, it's so and- funny because it's so funny because like, you know, there's there's suffering in singleness, but then there's also suffering in family life. And I think mm-hmm. oftentimes when people make that jump, they start lamenting, um, you know, like their newfound suffering. And I'll just look at my friends and be like, OK, which boat would you rather be in? It's all suffering, right. but like there's different yeah. suffering. Absolutely. Um, and like it's interesting that you said that because. I that's that's the thing. I don't think it's the cost of kids that makes people put off having more kids. I think it's it's the time that you have to put mm-hmm. in. It's the work. And and there, there's a great quote. Somebody said kids aren't expensive. Adults are. Yes. It's not the kids that want the vacations and, and exactly eating it. out mm-hmm. and, you know, all the things that adults can spend money on. We like to right. play with our money. It's right. kids just want your time. They just want your attention. They just want the love. And yep. that's totally self-giving and that's pouring out on somebody that especially in certain stages of life is not going to love you back like you're not right. gonna you're not gonna get that benefit I think it's funny because like you know everybody always talks about like the hard teenage years but after you reach that milestone you know your kids become your best friends like one of the right. things that I love that my grandmother you know she had a very hard life and um her husband died young and so she had to raise seven kids on her own work and it wow. was horrible it's horrible but you know now when you ask her who she wants to hang out with you know, it's her kids, like her daughters are her best friends. Right. And I don't think people understand that. Okay. Yeah. It's chaotic now, but now when you're older, you're going to be happy that you have all those people and their people surrounding you. I don't think think people think 30 years ahead. I think everyone's just living in the now. And I also think there are certain, you know, tropes and reputations that even teenagers develop in American society that don't have to be absolute. Like, you know, teenagers don't have to be these rebellious tyrants and, you know, liars that they're made out to be. And I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, you don't, your kids don't need to do that script, right? They can, I've heard from parents who, you know, are in their forties and fifties and they have several kids and, um, they, so they, they weren't able to give all of their attention to one child, right? Like it has to be spread among all of their kids, but they say like, oh no, like even the terrible twos, it's a total lie. Like my kids were great. Like I know every child's different, but, um, it's all how you frame it and it's all how you approach it. Even, you know, the teenage years, like I've, I have one friend who's a professor and she said like, I love my kids. I I love my, you know, I have two boys and they're just the best. They're, you know, 15 and 17 years old. And they're um, so much fun to be with. They give you so much love. So I'm totally in the camp of like, I'm going to do my best to view every age with its own drawbacks, but also it's its own beauty and and fun and love. And um, even, you know, whenever, and that's something that I, you know, I have to follow my own advice because I admittedly did not like the newborn stage. It was extremely demanding and exhausting. Um, And I, honestly really like the age my baby's at right now 11 months is great even though he is mobile so (laughs) i always have to have an eye on him but um you just got to roll with it and like trust that if you're parenting techniques even if you don't you don't have to read a manual about this you just have to honestly like this is why religion is so great especially if you're catholic is um you kind of have it all drawn out for you already on how to be a 
um, effective parent because the ultimate goal is to know God, is to make sure that your child is a good Christian. It doesn't require fancy vacations. It doesn't even require fancy toys. That's the biggest thing too. My 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 son doesn't play with toys. <laughs> like he plays with stuff around the house that I thought was just garbage, you know, like his favorite toy is like a empty San Pellegrino bottle. So that's, that's just kind of highlighted to me. Like they, yeah. like you just said, they do not need these fancy things. Sometimes they just need a little bit of creativity, your time and your love. Um, and that's more than a lot of parents can give their children, unfortunately, especially when you're, you know, coming from um, households where both parents are outside the house working um, and they're with, you know, non-relatives all day. So maybe in schools or daycares where, you know, they're not being taken care of by their parents necessarily, but um, by, you know, people who they aren't related to, like, you know, maybe if we were able to have um, more, if we interacted with our kids more, um, if we were able to design kind of, you know, things that made their, made them feel like, you know, my parents are um, guiding me towards this, you know, this, what, what is the ultimate purpose in my life? And obviously for Catholics, we believe it is to know God. And I think, you know, <laughs> I can go on and on about bad catechesis all day. Um, and this is, this is targeted specifically towards Catholics, but I, I do think that good catechesis, a good parish life, these things can heavily order your child's life. And, you know, obviously I'll, I'll let you guys know how that turns out for me and my kids once they're old enough, once my son's old enough and hopefully subsequent children. But, um, but yeah, I, like you said, you know, it doesn't need to be a, um, I hate the, the number they're like raising a kid today is going to cost you $200,000. It's like, okay. Um, or like I've seen a million dollars or whatever. It's like, how much of that is going towards college? Yeah. Like how much of that is going towards daycare and college? Yeah. Um, you're, you're, you know, there are ways around that. Right. Um, my, my husband really likes the book, by the way, if anyone's interested in this topic, um, by, um, I think Brian Kaplan, I think he's a George Mason professor, but it's called Selfish Reasons to Have Kids. Very, it's very economic space, but this. yeah, you might have. Um, but I think he has several children and um, it's a good kind of like more um, like cerebral way of thinking about it. Um, I mean, it's called Selfish Reasons, right? Yeah. For, to have kids, but it's a great way of envisioning it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, looking at, since this is the way that most um, millennials seem to be looking at it today is by the price tag on having kids. Um, well, look at it again and see how it can, you know, benefit you. Not that it should be, that's why you should jump into it because it could, you know, just primarily like in a very like Machiavellian sense, just benefit you in your life. Um, but uh, I do think, yeah, that that number is severely inflated because adults assign you know, kind of their desires onto what they want their lives to look like, um, rather than what it can look like if they just made some, you know, they cut some fat around the corners. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I oh, so many thoughts. Number one, I think I would love having teenagers, even fighting with yeah. them. I would love that. Like, I, cause <laughs> I love that age. I mean, there's a reason that the high school teenage genre is such a popular era to portray stories in, you know, whether it's yeah. you know, John Hughes starting that back in the 80s into nowadays it doesn't have to be all bad. Um, yeah, and, it, definitely. and also when you said that you didn't like the newborn stage, I was thinking of this guy at my gym who loves the newborn stage because oh, funny. it's funny. He was comparing it. He's like, it's like holding butter because they just have no <laughs> muscle. Yeah. So it's like this, you know, pound of butter on you. But it was it. it, it Honestly, when I'm holding my my friend's newborn babies, I, I look at them and I'm like, how do you get anything done around the house? Like, I yeah. would just be sitting here. It's like adoration. Like, you, right, you could right. just sit there forever. And, and what you were saying about um, cost, you would think that when we put out reports and studies about the cost to raise a child, 
you would think that society would be like, okay, let's try to cut that because there was an era where people had a dozen kids and it didn't cost that much. So you would have, you'd have to like look at, well, what's actually raising the cost of having children and let's actually work on that. You know, I'm in Cleveland, back home in Cleveland. And, um, you know, there's lots of these post-war suburb bungalows, you know, like these little Mm -hmm. tiny houses. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are buying them because they're really cheap and they're renovating them. I was thinking about it. I was like, there were people that had that raised like seven kids in yeah. these houses. Yep. And now the expectation, even before you get married, I mean, like if you look at like secular society where people are living together once they get engaged or before that, right? You know, the expectation is, oh, well, we have to buy a house and it has to be this massive, huge McMansion, McMansion, <laughs> and a new development. It has to be new, new, new. And right. We have to have you know these big expensive cars, and I'm just like that expectation is so silly to me. Like, yeah, it's I don't, so new. I mean, and here's the thing: like, I personally don't have that taste. I absolutely hate new cars and new houses. Yeah, same. So I would never actually want that. I would actually want to fix up and restore something old, which is also probably going to be expensive. But I just think that that expectation of it has to be this way is just so messed up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you hear stories. I hear stories from my parents. I mean, I've been back to my parents' houses growing up. You know, they, they grew up in like in Syria in the 1960s, 70s and you know 80s. And um, the houses they grew up in were like, I don't think they'd be legal. To, I don't. I think like child protective services would come to get your kids <laughs> if you raised your, you know, because your your electricity is going up three to four times a day. Um, so you know you, you have to like boil your milk because it might have some sort of you know, um, b- bacteria in it or whatever. So like, and you know they turned out really well. Not to say that that's how we should. You know, obviously I'm grateful for a lot of modern technology, but um, but yeah, I think people are. Um, th- there's this, you know phenomena, I guess, of um, keeping up with the Joneses and, you know, perpetually wanting to keep up with the Joneses, whether whether that's your friends and what they're doing or your neighbors or wanting always perpetually wanting bigger and better and nicer and cleaner and, you know, more expensive. And, um, you know, there's definitely, um, I think, you know, having a space where you're comfortable and um, happy is important. But, I honestly think that you can work. Honestly, I think I would be happy anywhere that I'm near my parents. In fact, I would be happy tomorrow at drop of hat to move in with my parents and my, you know, bring my family with me. I don't care about the space constraints, but, but you're right. Like people grew up in, um, much more meager conditions and, um, you know, there there's in Pittsburgh, you'll notice this is there's, we, and we, we've been through these houses before, but these like tiny houses in, um, communities that I guess used to be owned by like the, um, the steel mills and yeah. so they're company towns, right? All the houses look exactly the same. They may, you know, if there were several children in there, they definitely like, you know, bunkered up like they, they, yep. there were three or four children, in one bedroom. And, um, now it's like, you know, every child has to be going to like gymnastics, soccer and base and, and softball or whatever, three different sports, you know, we have activities just totally are overloading our schedules. And it's like, you know, the happiest families I know from my parish, especially, you know, these are Catholic families with five or six kids. Their kids aren't always at activities. They're like playing with each other. They're going, you know, out with their parents, at the park, they're being creative with what they have. Um, often these are, you know, they're, they're, definitely not living in these McMansions there. These are much more, um, kind of, you know, like very simple lives, but they're so happy. And, um, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of beauty in, um, you know, I'm going to quote, uh, the famous book, you know, small is beautiful. I definitely agree. Like, you know, oftentimes that, that is the case, but, 
Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, my my mom grew up poor and she it's so funny, like those kids from that era, like and I'm talking like the nostalgic, you know, growing up in the, the 60s, like as a kid, um, that whole era of kids that grew up very similar, you know, lower middle class poor. They love it. And they they are so nostalgic for it, like going to the dump, like the Willoughby dump was like yeah. my mom's favorite thing. They would find cool old stuff, ride yeah. their bikes around like it was so simple, but they had such freedom that I don't think kids nowadays experience. And, yeah. and they didn't have any money. It's It, it had right. nothing to do with money. It was just it was freedom. It was people around. It was, you know the simple stuff, but like there was a greater appreciation for all of it. And I just think that with kids that are experiencing more and more and more, it's so hard to have any appreciation for anything. Yeah. I think there's two things that really impact, you know, a lot of, I I think living in a low trust society hurts our ability to just, you know, have the good old days of, you know, letting our kids, and maybe this is just something that it's, it's this paranoia that, it, that maybe it's not the reality, but the paranoia of being able to just like send your kids to like, you know, a field down the street or the park down the street without necessarily needing you to just let them play perhaps like they used to. Right. Um, and also not having, you know, living in the suburbs can, I, I think the suburbs are great. Honestly, I've come, really come around to them because they're just so convenient. You can drive everywhere. Oh, I, am, awesome. I am such a suburb person, I, but I will yeah. say I'm picky about the suburb. I am too. That's what I was going to say is like, you know, there, there's the McMansion type suburbs where like you have them. these ginormous houses. Yeah. And you have like no tree coverage. You have no places to play. And um, there's, and there's no like town center. There's no little cute downtown, exactly. nice architecture. It's just strip mall. Yeah, exactly. I'm hopeful. I'm I'm Catholic, so you know I always yeah, have hope. Yeah. I wouldn't call myself an optimist, though. Um, <laughs> I would say you know I I have hope because you know I think ultimately like, you know I um, crave heaven, and my eyes are always set towards that way. So as long as my my eyes are set towards you know they're heaven bound, I I hope that my children are as well. And that's kind of my little platoon, I guess, that I have to worry about my kids, my community, my parents, my family. And, um, you know, above all of that, God, obviously. This is Jessica Kramer. You've been listening to The Base Catholic. I want to thank this week's guests. Be sure to check out Marlo's writing. And if you want to learn more about Jason's ministry, go to chastityproject.com. I wrote an article for them a while back called Cinderella Man and Chastity. He has a ton of books out there that are great resources for young people, including Forged, which is a 33-day exercise intended to forge new habits of virtue and replace old habits of sin in young men struggling with lust. I also contributed to that project. As you can tell, I'm a big fan of what he's doing, and I wish we had more people doing it. I want to thank Josh Booth for helping me this week, our show's chaplain, Father Kevin Estabrook of Cleveland, and of course, you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week. If you're like Aria and need more based, make sure you never miss an episode of The Based Catholic, Saturdays at 5 p.m. on AM 1420. The answer, as well as on all podcasting platforms and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Jessica Kramer helps you be Catholic and be based. There's a show. That's a show.